If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, film and television editor Sarah Taylor. And by me, writer-director Heather Taylor. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge the lands from which we recorded this podcast and from where you are listening are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here together. We continue to learn about the history that came before us and encourage you to do the same. On today's episode, we deconstruct emergency medicine and medical misinformation with ER doctor, Dr. Shazma Mathani. Are you wondering how many patients emergency doctors see in a day? Or why it's such a burnout profession? Listen on to find out more. We also discuss which TV series portray the ER in the most accurate way. Is it Grey's Anatomy? House? ER? Scrubs? And of course, we find out why Dr. Mathani decided to take to social media to dispel medical misinformation and how her work in the ER informs the kinds of topics she shares online. A quick reminder to our listeners that this interview should not be taken as medical advice, and it is for informational purposes only. Because everyone's brain is different, please consult your healthcare professional if you have any questions. And now, Dr. Shazma Mathani. Sajma, thank you so much for joining us on Brains today. I'm very excited to chat with you about medicine, ER, all of the things that we see on TV. But first, before we jump into that stuff, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm so excited to be here today. So thanks to the two of you for having me. Um, So I am an emergency doctor. I work in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Uh, I did my training, uh, residency training out here, and I work with both adults patients and pediatric patients. So I work in two separate ERs. Um, So that's kind of the bulk of what I do. But over the last few years, I've been venturing into using social media as a tool to educate the public and just make them more involved and aware of their health and and hopefully um, just empower them to have information surrounding health and cut through that noise of misinformation that's out there as a, a credible voice. Why did you choose to go into emergency medicine? So it was kind of an interesting journey. When I first started medical school, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a pediatrician. And then I, we get an opportunity. So I went to Western, so in London, Ontario. Um, we get an opportunity at the end of the first week of our first year of medical school, where we get a week called Rural Week, where everyone in the class goes into groups of like between five and seven and gets assigned to going to um, a small rural community. And like in Southwestern Ontario, there are a ton of rural communities that have hospitals too. And so um, I got assigned to go to Wyerton, like where Wyerton Willie lives, the groundhog. Oh, I got to go there and in, in rural spaces, the family doctors there get to do everything. They run the eMERGE, they run their clinics, they often do obstetrics as well. And so they're very much generalists. And I realized then that I just actually really liked doing a lot of things. After my second year of med school, I decided to spend some time doing Emerge, um, again, close by in, in Windsor, Ontario. 
um, where it was just Emerge. And it was then where I realized that I actually like liked everything. And then when I went through clerkship, it's a year of just rotating through everything. Every rotation that I went to, I'm like, oh, I like this. I want to be a surgeon. Oh, I like this. I want to be an obstetrician. And <laughs> family medicine is also very general. But for me, the, the procedure side of emergency medicine was also really interesting. Like being able to use my hands and do the resuscitations, as well as kind of the broader undifferentiated um, piece of things was was what eventually drew me to, to ER in particular. It's a really good mix of medicine and procedures. And when you see a patient that's having the worst day of your life, I feel that you can make a huge impact on the individual patient. And so all those things kind of combined together is what ended up pushing me to, to go for ER in the end. Okay. So there's a plethora, <laughs> a plethora of medical shows on television. So many. <laughs> so we just kind of picked Grey's Anatomy is like the longest running, I think, program currently on air. So for you, what are the best representations of the ER and let's say medicine in general that you've seen on film and TV? It's not Grey's Anatomy. Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) I figured that though. I watched a few different shows. I mean, I I watched Grey's Anatomy throughout medical school. I've watched House, also not a good representation. As an ER doctor, I've never watched ER before. So I took some time, usually in the evening before I was going to bed, just to watch some of these TV shows. And I have to say that Scrubs is very, very accurate. It's like a very good portrayal of residency and the emotions that you kind of go through as a resident when you're, you know, worried about seeing your first patient, when you're making that transition from medical student into resident, where you really have a big increase in the level of responsibility that you get when you move from medical student to resident. And kind of even throughout that journey, as you become a senior resident and then a junior staff, it does a really great job at portraying the emotions and the fear and the anxiety Um, that we feel during those kind of critical times. I was pleasantly surprised at how accurate it was at portraying kind of the the human side of medicine. Amazing. So, oh, wait, did you get to watch ER then as well? I did. So I watched a few episodes of ER. I would say that the representation of how things work in the ER is fairly good, but I don't think many ERs are as busy (laughs) with all of these interesting cases and all of these high acuity cases as they represent in the show. And of course it is a show, so they have to make sure that things stay interesting from a medical standpoint. But in terms of the way the ER runs and um, how consults happen and how residents and medical students are learning, it has, it's a pretty good representation of the the workflow of an ER. I'm curious about, your experience in the air, like what are some things that you encounter that people might not think about that we like are not seeing on TV? I think the big thing, again, because TV really represents that exciting part of medicine, people are often surprised when I tell them that maybe 80% of the people that I see in a given shift are not that those like really high acuity cardiac arrests or traumas. Um, that's thankfully relatively rare that people come in really that sick that need a huge amount of resources from a hospital standpoint, from a personnel standpoint to, to try to get them better and to save their lives. So thankfully, that's relatively rare. Um, for the most part, it's a lot of people who are coming in who can walk on their own, do need attention, do need medical attention, do need, uh, you know, investigations and lab tests and imaging and those sorts of things. Um, maybe some consultations with some specialists too. Uh, but it's that that chaos, that level of chaos that TV portrays is really not there all the time, which is which is good because even even without that, ER is a very high burnout specialty. It's the highest burnout specialty that exists in medicine. There's no way that we would be able to cope with that level of chaos and that level of acuity all the time. 
I think that another thing that people are surprised by when I talk to them about it is just how quickly we have to move from one patient to the next. There's really no level of downtime because there are always people in beds to be seen. There's always a waiting room full of people. And so what that often means for uh, me and my colleagues is that it's really hard to be able to process some of that trauma that we have encountered. I mean, like all of the cases, they stick with us, right? When someone dies, when someone is critically ill, when there is a family that we have to break bad news to, those are things that stick with us forever. Um, and it's, and we don't get to have any sort of time on shift to, to stop because the next person needs us and is waiting for us to get there and get to them and help them. Hopefully we have time to process it after the shift. Uh, but even sometimes that's challenging. What do you do? If you know you're well aware that there's trauma and that you're experience, can you experience burnout, what are some ways that you take care of yourself? The trauma is unavoidable. Yeah, everyone deals with it differently. I mean, I've gone through a long process of trying to figure out what works well for me. I have a excellent psychologist that I see to work through a lot of that. I have close, like one of my best friends is also an emerge doc because there are things that nobody will understand in the way that another emergency physician, not even another doctor, will understand it in the same way as being in the emergency department is. And so having those close colleagues of mine that also work in the emergency, be able to just like text them or call them to debrief about, you know, concerns about a case. We all often beat ourselves up about things, right? When things, when, when, when there are bad outcomes and for the most part, those bad outcomes are often unavoidable, but we feel that, right? Because our goal at the end of every patient that we see is to make them better, to fix them to, you know, improve their outcomes and quality of life. And we can't always do that. Oftentimes we're limited by resources, but even just the inherent nature of what they're coming in with. And so a lot of times I'm talking to my friends and colleagues about this, or they're coming and talking to me about that too. Just because it's, it's nice to just hear it from an external person to say, you know, I would have actually done the same thing. You did nothing wrong. This is just, this sucks. This is a, a terrible case, but you just want to be able to hear what somebody else who really understands that will say back to you and, and be able to just debrief with them on that, that level. And then, I mean, beyond being able to have that core group of people to debrief with and my psychologist to debrief with, I just try to, you know, move, move my body, get out. Um, exercise is really helpful for me because it's one of the one ways that I can really clear my mind. I usually like throw on some music where it's not like, like, you know, something that's not going to have me ruminating on cases or anything. Uh, I started to learn to play the piano as an adult, just like a year ago with my daughter. That's so cool. (laughs) It's super fun. So, um, because like I, I played it, like I played an instrument in junior high school, not the piano ever. So I had like some level of being able to read music, but because piano was something that's completely new to me, it is one of the only things that exists that I can do where I cannot think about anything else. So it's like, even when I, even when I meditate thoughts come in, right? This is, this is one thing where I cannot think about anything else because I'm so hyper-focused on reading the music and playing the keys. Um, So that's actually been a pleasant discovery of being able to use that to block things out of my mind and to not have to think about things. So it's, so that's been, um, that's been pretty fun. And then I do like to write every once in a while. and, And typically what I do with that is if there's a topic that I'm um, passionate about or, or have concerns about, I'll just, I'll write. I'll typically with the, with the goal of writing it as an opinion piece. And then if it gets picked up, great. If not, then at least I was able to kind of get, get into a flow and get things out. As we were talking about 
mental health of physicians, I'd love to hear how you approach mental health crises that present in the ER. Because I feel like this is my assumption that there that's where a lot of people go when they're in crisis, specifically in that arena. And it is a, a place that a lot of people go when they're in crisis, because we are kind of that safety net for society from a medical standpoint, and even from socioeconomic status or, or social factor status, right? And so we are often the safety net for a lot of people when they're in crisis. And it has become very apparent that there needs to be more community support and more wraparound services in order to work in a preventative way, right? In a supportive way. And, and that's a lot of what I do on my social media platforms too, is talking about pre- prevention, right? The, the, in an ideal world, you should not have to come to the ER. Of course, some things are out of people's control and, and can't be prevented, but there's so many things that I see in the ER, including people in mental health crisis that are preventable and are avoidable. But there really is a lack of focus and attention on that outside of acute medicine piece where having a family doctor, having a therapist, having a psychiatrist, having a dietitian, all of these preventative services, having a good pharmacist that you can see that can review your medications regularly. Those are the things that kind of team of people, what we call the medical home, that team of people are what is the most bang for your buck from an economic standpoint, but also from an an individual patient standpoint, where if that is dialed in, they are not going to come to us in crisis. And so I, I would say that not only for mental health, but in, in things, every, you know, in, in most things that come to me in general, a lot of it is preventable and a lot of it, um, is not focused on enough by the people who are deciding where money goes and, and the decisions that are being made because it's not, you know, when we talk about, um, things that are in crisis, yes, the ER is in crisis. Yes, we have high wait times and yes, we have, a challenge there, but that all stems from what comes before. Mm-hmm. Right. Why are yeah. people coming to the ER? Because they don't have a family doctor, because they haven't been able to have that preventative care. And so, yes, it's the, it's the crunch point, it's the crisis point, but it needs to be looked at in a much broader light to, to kind of think back a couple of steps of why this is actually happening and then focus on those things so that we don't keep repeating history and keep having, you know, the acute care system in crisis. Oh, totally. Yeah. Services. We need services. Yeah, <laughs> we need services. And like, especially from a mental health standpoint, Heather, you just asked that. I mean, most people don't have access to psychologists. They, they're they expensive if you don't have coverage. Even having access to psychiatrists is becoming more and more challenging just because of the sheer volume of patients that they have to see. Having access to group therapy, to other counseling services, to other kind of wraparound services. Like these are all things that keep people off medications, keep people out of the eMERGE. And there just isn't enough of it right now. From that, I want to ask this question of like, what are some common misconceptions found in media that may impact patient care or now like regulations that are being made? What are those mis... I think the speed within which things happen is a big one. So for me in the emergency department, of course, the way things are portrayed on TV, it's always high acuity. And and when someone comes into the ER, it is like, it is the worst day of their life, mm-hmm. right? Whether they are needing resuscitation and need, you know, CPR, or whether they have severe abdominal pain in a kidney stone, like when people come to the ER, it's often the worst day of their lives. And it's important for my colleagues and I to always remember that, right? Because there's always sicker people around. Um, but it's important for us to always remember, like that the patient in front of us is is suffering in some way. 
And so in terms of the portrayal of like the speed within which things happen on TV, it, it becomes a point of frustration for patients, I, I find often, because it kind of sets expectations in an unrealistic way. Because there's, you know, oftentimes in excess of 30 people in the waiting room and then an additional like 40 or 50 people that are in the department in a bed, that's a lot of people that are kind of moving through the system. Um, you know, it, it, the eMERGE that I work at, we often see volumes of over 200 patients in a 24-hour period. Like that's a lot of people moving through. And so there's a level of like balance and, and triaging, of course, that has to take place there. And I hate for people to have to wait, but it's, it's, it's part and parcel of the way that the system works. Whether it's a public system or a private system, right? There's, there's never enough people to see the volume that need to be seen. And so unfortunately, that means that people have to wait. Um, and when it's a situation where they're suffering, that wait becomes more frustrating and feels more acute to that patient. And so I feel like that is often portrayed poorly in the media and, and then kind of bleeds into what expectations are of the public. I would say further to that, when, you know, we talked about preventative care and like just general public health, right? That is often something that's poorly portrayed in media as well, because we don't ever see shows about your family doctor, like, (laughs) right? You, You don't see shows about your family doctor. It's mostly hospital medicine that we're seeing portrayed in media. And so there's this entire bigger piece of medicine that's not discussed at all. And again, it frames things in a very specific way for patients. Primary care family medicine is the foundation of our healthcare system, right? Preventative care is the foundation of our healthcare system. And because a lot of the, a lot of shows and movies really focus on hospital medicine, we miss that entire other piece of what's, what in my opinion is truly important in the overall health of individuals. Yeah, in the states, they're they're currently looking at changing a kind of rule back to what it was before the pandemic, where doctor or psychiatrists that can't do telehealth to prescribe certain medications, but it's actually going to impact a huge amount of people who don't have access to psychiatry or other places. Like my psychiatry is covered, but suddenly we I'm having a discussion with my psychiatrist because I take a scheduled medication for my ADHD. And suddenly it's like, okay, could we get my family doctor? Thankfully, I have one to prescribe, Mm -hmm. right? But then you're starting to put the burden on family doctors to take the place of a psychiatrist or work in tangent with the psychiatrist because the psychiatrist will no longer be able to do part of their job because of regulations that really aren't looking at the impact that telehealth has had in improving people's lives. Absolutely. Every single decision that's made has unintended consequences. Yes. And which is why, you know, perhaps we're fixing one thing, but there are all of these downstream effects that often get overlooked and then they come back to bite us later. The ruling about telehealth too is that this idea that people are abusing ADHD medications from their doctor. And I'm like, no, we just need them. Thank you. Like if we could not be vilified for being able to get medication that actually changes our lives and makes our lives better. Totally. And like the baseline assumption should always be that someone needs something, right? Not that there's any level of, you know, sneaky or shady behavior going on. The baseline assumption should always be that someone needs something and then you can address it, like assess it and address it after that. Oh yeah. Like I got given a really low dose of something. And then when I came back and my psychiatrist like, how was it? And I explained and she's like, oh great. So you really do have ADHD. They're wanting to like triple check. And if this medication works and therefore you have it shouldn't necessarily be the basis of like part of your, like the basis of diagnosis. But again, 
that worry always, oh, you're coming to abuse something. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of times I think just like from the medical perspective, that sentiment and approach is often because we've been burned before. Yeah. That's Ooh, what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. In medicine in general, like for me and Emerge, like we always talk about like the pendulum swings from like over-investigating to under-investigating. And it really is based on what the most recent events are, right? If you've had a bad outcome, yeah, whether it was preventable or not, if you've had a bad outcome, you don't want to miss something like that again. And so for the next little while after that, you're thinking, okay, like I need to order all these tests on somebody because I need to make sure that they don't have something bad. And then of course that kind of like normalizes a bit over time as you, you know, get, get the feedback of, you know, these patients, you're doing a good job. These patients are okay. And then again, like it's inevitable. There's always going to be bad outcomes. So something else happens and it kind of shifts you again that way. And so it's kind of this trying to find this equilibrium of what the right balance is. And oftentimes the way in which health professionals behave is because of past experience. Yeah. I think that's a really important thing to say out loud for people to hear, because I think sometimes we forget when we're in that crisis point that the doctors are also human and have human experiences. And yeah, that would make sense that what you, the past experiences that you've experienced, you bring on to your, to your work, just like we all do in our yeah. life, right? Yeah. And like when, you know, I, like I had said at the beginning of the interview, like we carry everything with us forever. And so even when it's like a super rare case or a super rare outcome, the next time that comes along, it's like this, this, these flashbacks of, you know, that case and, and making sure that we do everything we can the next time to make sure something doesn't happen again. And again, like it's, may or may not be preventable. Oftentimes it's not preventable, but we still carry that with us and we still remember. I'm a big fan of your social media. Every time I see a new post come up, I'm like, oh, I'm going to read about this today. I want to know, why did you start, you know, busting medical myths? This is what I'm going to say on social media. (laughs) And uh, I like that. And how (laughs) that's going to be your new theme song. Um, And how do you decide what you're going to cover? So it was this very interesting evolution over the course of the pandemic. So I was not really super active on social media before 2020. I had a Twitter account that I think I had like four or five tweets out ever. (laughs) (laughs) And I had an Instagram account that was just like following my friends, right? I didn't have a TikTok account. And so the pandemic happened and I initially went to social media to get information for me. Mm. To learn what was happening in the rest of the world because it was a very scary time for frontline healthcare yes. workers. Um, all we could see on the news was like what was happening out of New York and Italy and just how scary it was that like healthcare workers were dying. I was scared for my family. And so it was a way for me to get information, right? To be able to see what evidence was coming out, kind of following certain hashtags and, and getting a good understanding of what was out there. And then slowly over the course of the pandemic, we had this kind of parallel infodemic that started. And so it turned in from me consuming information to then being a voice to try to cut through that medical misinformation. Because COVID is what was happening, I kind of decided to use my platform to get accurate information out there, you know, about vaccines, about masking, staying home when you're sick, like all of these basic things that are really important public health measures um, to be that like kind of this credible voice, right? I am a Royal College trained physician in emergency medicine, right? So I am an expert in this. I wanted to get my voice out there. And then that kind of led to, of course, like traditional media interviews, not less traditional media interviews, podcasts, those sorts of things. And so that kind of happened over a course of like two and a half to three years. And my following built up quite significantly on Twitter in particular. And so as the the rest of the world kind of 
didn't want to hear about the pandemic anymore. It wasn't over. Um, but people were wanting to move on, which is very understandable. One of the things that became really apparent again during the pandemic was that a lot of people were consuming their health information through social media, not necessarily from their doctor or their pharmacist or their other healthcare providers. It was from scrolling Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Less so Twitter, but like Instagram and TikTok. And so I used that as a pivot to get different types of health information out there. And oftentimes it was circumstances where the way that I got ideas was, well, what's coming into the ER that maybe doesn't necessarily need to come into the ER, right? And a lot of that initially started in pediatrics because I do both, where it was concerned parents, right? These pandemic babies where a child has never had a fever before, so it's understandably scary for a parent, Um, you know, where there's a lingering cough, all these sorts of things that require just some, like some education for the parents, hopefully to avoid an an ER visit for them. And so that's kind of how it started is just using my shifts, using what I was seeing at work to, um, kind of inspire me to make whatever content was relevant and important. So that's kind of how it started and, and it, it took off, right? Like I, um, have kind of transitioned from making videos to now like making some infographics. And it's always driven by what I'm seeing, what's happening in the environment. So like in the summertime, I was making stuff about um, sunburns, right? Sun exposure, air quality, like the, the types of things that are relevant as the spring's coming up, I've put up some content about like seasonal allergies, right? So like it's the things that I anticipate are going to happen based on the time of year um, and what I'm seeing in the ER. And again, the idea is that to be that credible source of information, to empower people to take uh, some ownership of their health, but also to have that information so that they can make informed decisions on, on what's important, where they should go, whether they should go to their family doctor, whether they should go to the ER. One of my favorite ones, like recently, was one of your children had a bleeding nose. And then you told the funny story about like, oh, somebody gave me misinformation in the airport. But then you did a whole little series on, well, what this is what you should do for a bleeding nose. And I was like, this is brilliant. This is totally exactly what I, we need. It was, yeah, that was, it was a little laughable moment for me. And I like, just didn't, I mean, he totally meant well. And I just like yeah. did not have the heart to be like, cause I was in some random airport in the U S right. Like not even like anything local <laughs> where someone might know who I am, but just, uh, I think it was at the Denver airport. Yeah. What was the advice? The, yeah. So yeah. Yes. So the advice <laughs> is so when you have a nosebleed, he told me to put your head back and pinch up here and so that the blood runs down the back of your throat, I'm like, that's actually a bad idea. Because then you start vomiting and it doesn't actually <laughs> stop your nosebleed. Like, no. But what you should do is lean slightly forward and pinch your nostrils here. So you're completely occluding your nostrils. And then you like set a timer for 10 minutes and like 95% of the time it'll stop it. So you just pinch like right at where your nostrils are. So you close them. Exactly. Not pinching the bridge of your nose, exactly. which is what everyone sees. Which is what everyone sees every, and what yeah, everyone yeah. does. And now yeah. my four my four year old nose picker, because he is like that's why he gets nosebleeds. <laughs> he now, when he gets a nosebleed, he pinches his nostrils right away. So it's like a proud mom moment that the you know I've had to stop enough nosebleeds for him that he now knows what to do. So. <laughs> Oh, well, I don't, I've never had a nosebleed, so I don't know this information, but by, by learning this through your social media, I was like, well, this is good. This is good for me when I one day encounter someone with a nosebleed. There you go. Yeah. I love it. Well, I know I've noticed a transition where you're also talking about your own well-being and you've done a movement kind of challenge. You've done a water one. You did meditation. And I think now you're doing sleep. Yeah. Wow, really, yeah. You remember them all perfectly. I'm really surprised. <laughs> um, well, must, they must be impactful for me as well. So what, what made you decide to go down that journey? So the 
the movement thing is something I've been doing every January with one of my best friends for a long time. For the last three or four years, we both have Apple watches, like no stake in that at all. But we just like the rings are very motivating. <laughs> so uh, a few years ago, like before the pandemic, I think it was the, like 2019 was the first year we did it. We decided, you know, like, let's we're, we're already pretty active people, but let's really just double down and try to close our rings every day for the month of January. It's like a fresh start to the new year. And often it was actually the stand one that was the most challenging I found because even after I got a good workout in, I almost like used it as an excuse just to like blaze around for the rest of the day. This year was the first time that I did it with a larger social media following after I kind of made that transition. And so there was lots of engagement. Like people were messaging me, um, were kind of following along with me. Lots of my friends decided to also do like just really focus on movement that month. And so because of that, I thought, well, you know what? This is great because I get to like engage with my audience and, and kind of do it together. So I made a decision that I would try it again, try something different for another, for another month. So in February, it was hydration. I'm so bad at drinking water. I have my a water cup sitting right here next to me. So like I try to just have it with me everywhere. That was a fun journey too. And then being able to make specific content related to it. And then after February, I was thinking, well, you know what? Why don't I just do something every month for a year? So <laughs> I have now committed to picking something every month for a year. So Sarah, as you mentioned, like last month was meditation, which was awesome. Um, and then this month is sleep, which is I am learning a lot. As a shift worker, uh, sleep has always been a big challenge for me. And I've had a lot of people because I have lots of healthcare workers that follow me too. Lots of people messaging me being like, well, let me know how, how do I sleep better as a shift worker? I'm like, I'm also trying to figure that out this month. So we will do it together. I think you said the other day that you'll do a, a four hour stint of sleep pre-shift and then you'll do another and that kind of blew my mind a little yeah and so I've been like because this week I'm going to put some stuff out on on shift worker sleep and so I've been doing some reading around it and if you can't sleep a full seven to nine hours in in one go the next best thing to do is to split it into two pieces so still total seven to nine hours in a 24-hour period but split it into like in the have some sleep in the morning and then and then sleep before your shift and so interestingly, that's kind of what I'd already been doing. So it was nice to hear that I was already doing that. But I think that's going to be important information to get out there for everybody else too. What is something that you've decided to cover on your social media that's kind of surprised you with the information that you've learned or the engagement from people? I would say the sleep thing has been really interesting because like I said, there's a lot of people that are shift workers that follow me. And I think in I think the general baseline for a lot of people who are busy professionals is to go off less sleep and think that they can function on less sleep. I'm one of those people too. Um, and so it's been really eye-opening for me to learn about the significant negative health impacts of not having enough sleep, which is like scared me enough to like actually focus on it and do better at it. And just how many of my followers also are quite surprised by how much sleep adults truly need. Um, so that, that's been really interesting to kind of go through that, go through that and learn myself on, on how how bad not enough sleep can be for you. Um, but also just how important and how maybe undersleeped my following is right now. Yeah. Everybody needs to sleep. Yeah. How has, you know, being on social media also, I don't know, influenced you in terms of either like what you're doing for yourself, how you're thinking about patients, how you are looking at what your researcher talking about, how is that impacting you? I would say that it's really had a positive change in perspective just on even like the patients that I'm seeing at work because every once in a while someone will message me being like oh you know you saw my kid 
in Emerge. And it's so heartwarming because I don't often, like as an Emerge doc, we don't get that feedback, right? We don't ever want to see anybody again in Emerge. It's like very different, like in terms, you know, from a clinic-based specialty where there's like longitudinal care and follow-up. Emerge is not often where you're seeing people frequently, which is good. We don't want to see people frequently, but it means that there's like not really, unless we're kind of calling people back to check on them, which we, which we do every once in a while, we don't get that feedback. And so it's been kind of nice that every once in a while, someone will, who was already following me or has found me will say, Hey, you know, like you saw my kid last month and thank you so much for your help. And so it's been, it's been really nice to get that feedback. Mm. Um, and those kind words, uh, because then it like really just makes it makes it feel worth it again for me. There was a time during the worst part of the pandemic where, especially on the front line in Emerge, we were just done. Like, yeah, there was no, no satisfaction like coming from being at work, from going, going and doing a shift. And there was like no joy. Like we all did, we all did Emerge and chose medicine because we love it. We want to be able to help people and like make an impact on people's lives. And there was a time that still I think is present now where it's just that joy has just been sucked right out of work for us. And it's terrible because it like it exacerbates burnout. It decreases career longevity, decreases career satisfaction. It has all sorts of other concerning negative consequences, like just the level of moral injury that we have faced as a profession has been profound. And so having these little bits of feedback and having to have a different outlet, a different way that I can be in medicine has been great for me personally to like combat that burnout and be able to look at work in a different way, be able to look at patients in a different way. It's been like a really unexpected positive side effect of all of this. I love that. Yeah. There's that accessibility that someone can reach out to you and say, thank you. Cause I know I've had some great ER doctors in the past, but I don't know. <laughs> I can't yeah. find them. I don't know yeah. where they are. You don't bring by a fruit basket later. <laughs> yeah. So that's, oh, that makes me feel, that makes my heart feel warm for you. I just want to bring it back to, to film and television. What would you like to see represented more on film and television and media? I'd really like to see the human side of medicine represented more. You know, Sarah, you mentioned that like people forget that physicians are humans too that we all make mistakes. And I would really like to see that side where it shows kind of the things that we continue to carry. The decisions are often not straightforward. There are some like, you know, that are like, when somebody comes in with a cardiac arrest, it is so algorithmic, right? There is like a clear algorithm in place where, you know, you do your chest compressions. This is the intervals that you give medications in. This is the intervals that you check to see if they have a pulse. And like, it is very algorithmic. You like, check things off your list to kind of rule things out as the cause of their cardiac arrest. So those are like often the most mental, mentally easily e- easy ones, right? Like we're like from a medicine standpoint, certainly not in your heart. They're not the easiest in your heart, but from a mental standpoint, those are often the easiest because you're just following an algorithm. It's the other ones where somebody comes in completely undifferentiated, where you have no idea what they have. You have to you know, make challenging decisions where then there are social factors that come in, family factors that come in where you're having to balance and juggle all of these things to make the right decision for the patient. And that's often missed in media, that whole other side on the back end, outside of just the medicine and and the medical decisions, that all of the things that actually factor into making that decision at the end of the day. And and then the human impact of that in terms of how we carry that balance and whether we actually did make the right decision in a particular circumstance for, for the patient's best interest. 
And so I, I, I'd like to see more of that um, just because I feel like it would help patients view us beyond just the medical phase. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Of, of that there, there, there is like turmoil and stuff that we have to go through too. When we're at work, when we're, when we're done with work, when we're going home, having to, you know, live through and process all of the, the moral injury that we've encountered. You talked about family briefly. I don't think sometimes we get to see enough of families and then family involvement. Mm-hmm. You know, what would you like to see in terms of, you know, family advocacy or just like how they work in tandem with the doctor because they'll know more information than you'll ever know coming in? Absolutely. Like oftentimes when I see a patient who is confused or ill or kind of has a low level of consciousness, all of the information that we get is either from the family member that's there or the family member that's told the paramedics information that they are then conveying to us. And so there's so much, yeah, like the, just the, and even then in having discussions, you know, when somebody is really sick, having to have those really challenging and heartbreaking conversations with family members, including often like young children that are involved in the conversation. We don't often see that in media. And that's a regular part of our day when we have patients who are who are sick and and where they then maybe need to like, you know, they might be awake and talking and there's like a decision point that comes along and they want to be able to talk to their family member to make an informed decision and to be able to have that discussion with them. Or I'm waiting for a family member to come in so that we can have that conversation together about what the best thing is for their family member for the patient. When we watch these shows, like a specialist always are in the ER, specialists from all over the hospital, like how often are they actually in the ER? At a teaching hospital, uh, not because it's often the residents that are there that are doing the consults. We are constantly consulting with specialists. So for the more common ones for me, um, internal medicine, cardiology, general surgery, those are like, pro- and ICU, those are like the top ones that we often talk to. Sometimes it's like the subspecialties, like a neurologist or you know, a respirologist, things like that, sometimes gynecology. But it's often because it's a teaching hospital, There, it's it's the residents that come down. That doesn't mean that I can't just call up the attending on the phone. It's, it's very easy to do that. And we often have that level of collegiality where I can just, you know, hey, can I just run something by you instead of having a full formal consult? But typically, it's it's lots of different residents from different specialty services that are down there, seeing the patients that they've been consulted on, admitting them, doing extra tests on them, figuring out follow-up, those sorts of things. So they see you first as the ER doc, and then you're like, hey, person upstairs, resident upstairs, and then they'll come and do extra testing. And so, but you're like the first doctor they would see. Yes, exactly. So when they come through Merge, I would be the first doctor that they would see. And sometimes I discharge them to get some follow-up. And other times, if I think they need to be admitted for a certain reason, then I would call the appropriate consulting service. Or if I think they need maybe for them to be seen, but have some close follow-up as an outpatient, then I would call the specialist. It is not how it is on Grey's Anatomy. That's like the one, the one sticking, one of the many sticking <laughs> points that I have with Grey's Anatomy is that like the surgeons are down there running emerge. All like, the time. No, yeah. That's why I wanted to ask. Cause I was like, these surgeons seem to be like also ER specialists. And I feel like that's not correct. No, it's not. They're <laughs> ER specialists to do that. Yeah. Because isn't it always one of them is like just in manning the ER like all the time? It's yeah, like they don't have any ER doctors there. That's yeah, really it's, funny. it's it's it is funny and so inaccurate. <laughs> okay, I know that we we always try to focus on the positive, but I want to know from you. Okay, we're going down the Grey's Anatomy route. What are some other things that you're like? C- come on, no, 
so many things. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't think there are that many hookups in the hospital the way they're like the love squares and triangles in Grey's Anatomy. They're a little, they're quite outrageous. Like the level of intertwined relationship situations there. So no, or at least not the people I was hanging out with. <laughs> maybe you're in just the wrong hospital. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe I'm in the wrong hospital. <laughs> Um, the ER thing, even how like they fought like Grey's Anatomy and House, right? Like physicians are not typically the ones that are drawing the labs on a patient. There are phlebotomists for that or the nurses are the ones starting the IVs because they are just way better at it than we are. We don't run our own tests like that doesn't happen. There are people in lab like lab technicians for that. That is their area of expertise. So like, no, we're not running our own tests. We're not typically not following our patients to get tests done. So like often on Gray's or on house, it's showing like the team of people like going to CT with someone. And unless it's someone that's really, really sick and unstable, I'm not going to CT with the patient. It's typically the bedside nurse that's going in. Or even sometimes if they're stable enough, there is, you know, a service worker reporter that takes them. Radiologist meet, radiology meets them and then they come back because they're stable enough to go on their own. And so the, the level with which they're moving around the hospital is so inefficient and like not how things actually I, I, Yeah, because they're always in the CT room looking at the, the monitors, having their personal conversation. And like also, their- there's a radiologist for that, right? The radiologist is the person that is trained to look at the images and then give us a report. So like even that, like there's a specific physician for that role too. Yeah, the amount of times I've been told to follow the blue line to the whatever place. You're like, okay. And then you wander off down a hallway and then you find a chair and hope that that's the right chair. <laughs> I broke both my wrists once. So I was in the ER because it was an it was an emergency. I saw my orthopedic surgeon before my surgery. I didn't see. And then I just had. Well, obviously, there was an ER doc at the beginning. But then, like, I went, yeah, I got the x-rays. There was no doctor. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. But you don't think about those. Like, if you've had experiences in the ER, when you're watching something like Grey's or any of those medical shows, you kind of forget that you <laughs> the reality of it. Totally. When you're there, then you're like, why am I not getting enough attention? Like, why is my doctor not with me all the time? So I could see that that could impact patient care that they're like getting anxious and getting upset because they're not getting house or Gray's anatomy access, right? Yeah. Access to their physician. And like, there's this level, there's this like amount of waiting that is also not portrayed in media, right? So like there, there's waiting in the waiting room. So you get seen by a triage nurse, then you wait in the waiting room until you're, you know, depending on how sick you are, you come in. Then you wait in a bed until you see your nurse. Then you wait a bit more until you see your doctor. Then your doctor sees you, gets a bunch of tests. Then you wait more, right, for the test results to come back. You may need some secondary tests after that. Then let's say you need to be like a specialist to see you. Then you're waiting for the specialist to see you, right? And so like there are all these points of waiting that take place as we're getting more information adding more tests or, or decision points, depending on what that information is. And so there's actually like quite a bit of waiting even after you get into the ER and like those sorts of things are like, again, that doesn't make for good TV. So it's like no, not, does not. not portrayed. Or that your position changes, right? Like depending on who else is coming into emergency, I'm assuming I've had this where you're not as important as someone who can't breathe or his heart stopped. Like you just get pushed down. It's not like first in, first out. Exactly. So that adds to the time. And so even though it is the worst day of your life, it is also, you. it's someone else's maybe worst day, worser, worser day than you, <laughs> more worse. Yeah, totally. Like it's, it's even worse for someone else, right? Like it, and 
it's often hard to f- frame it that way when you're worried about something about your health, but you don't want to be the person that's going in first because that means you're super sick and dying. I have to say when I broke my wrists, I had a lot of fun in the year. I did have to wait in the ER for quite a bit of time, but I had some good meds and my mom was feeding me chicken strips and I was having the best time of my life. So Sounds it was amazing. Fine. I, I didn't mind I waiting. I think you were a little high, Sarah. <laughs> Just I might've been a little high. <laughs> We've talked about your social media. We've talked about lots of great film and television things. Where would you recommend our listeners to go to get some resources? Obviously, your social media would be one of them. But anywhere, I guess, where you would suggest people going to, you know, combat medical misinformation. I think it's it's not necessarily where you go, but I think it even starts with, like, making sure that you are getting the right information that it's the person that you're getting it from is credible. So start even a step back, like is the person that I'm seeing or talking to, what are their credentials? Are they like a, you know, um, are they a physician, uh, a certified pharmacist, a nurse, like who am I getting this information from? I think even taking a st- taking it that step back first is being critical of who you're getting the information from, whether it's on social media or outside of social media in person. And then the next step would be um, making sure that you're then following people who are credible. So like science up first, love them. They, they are awesome, right? They, they do such a good job of like distilling down information with evidence. Um, you know, people like Timothy Caulfield or Jen Gunter, like two excellent people who are really good at cutting through misinformation. Come follow me, of course. Um, and then beyond that, looking at like websites that might be helpful. So looking at like the Health Canada website, the CDC website, the WHO website, very credible sources of information. Um, Science Up First has a website as well. So really credible sources of information. And then looking at the professionals that you surround yourself with, right? See your family doctor, see your pharmacist, see your physiotherapist. Like these are people who are certified college regulated people. Like they have colleges that regulate them, which is also a really important thing to consider. Um, because there's a level of accountability there then, right? Seeing your family doctor going to your pharmacist, those are people who are um, experts in this. And uh, where can people find you online? <laughs> yeah, so my handle is Dr. Shazmamathani for everywhere that I am. So on TikTok, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook. So I'm on all those platforms, YouTube as well as Dr. Shazmamathani. So that's where you can find me. Is there anything else that you would want our listeners to know about medical misinformation working in the ER? I just think, again, like being critical of the information that you're seeing. And if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. I think that that's what I want to leave people with that, like, look at the evidence, ask important and hard questions. And if something sounds like a silver bullet, there are very few things in the world that are. Um, And if it's costing you money, also think hard about it, whether it is actually something that has good evidence behind it, because it probably doesn't. And if someone stands to make money off of it, it's probably something where they're trying to manipulate you or trying to, um, you know, uh, feed on your vulnerabilities to try to get you to buy into something. Oh, great tip. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. It was wonderful. And I look forward to continuing to follow you and learn more every day. So thank you for spreading that information. Thank you so much for having me today. It's been fun. I love that scrubs mm-hmm. is the most accurate, especially like emotionally, like the emotional feelings and, you know, those experiences you go through as a doctor. And and as you watch, you realize, yeah, they don't always have emergencies. It's just a lot of just like dealing with each other and the interpersonal relationships that doctors have with each other and then how they deal with patients 
and the different coping mechanisms they have. Mm-hmm. It's pretty brilliant. Yeah. And I, f- I feel like there's other aspects of Scrubs that I've like have become like kind of critically acclaimed post run of Scrubs. Mm. And so I feel like it's a series that I need to rewatch. You know, there's humor in there and there's like some things that seem silly, but underneath it, you realize that sometimes that silliness is there to also cope with what you're dealing with. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what kind of exciting things have been happening in your life, Sarah Taylor? Uh, our house has COVID, so we're tired. <laughs> so I am yeah. low energy today. But you're here. It is post-pandemic or it is pandemic, post-pandemic? What is it? No. I don't even know. We're in Something an endemic. That we have, it's we, endemic. It's yes. the times of living with this and like, it just sucks. So I've been trying to push through, do my things, take breaks. Rest. And rest. And um, so yeah, so my my mother's, this is being recorded post-Mother's Day. So my Mother's Day weekend uh, was just at home, which is fine. Chilled. I watched Grey's Anatomy, actually. So that was fun. <laughs> uh, fitting the thing to record today. And uh, just relaxed. I did watch the latest rendition of the Bridgerton series called Queen Charlotte. I feel like we're going to have to have a discussion about how they uh, handle mental health in that there show. But we'll save that for a day when I have more brain capacity. <laughs> All right. And maybe I, then I'll have to watch it first. I yes, have not watched will. it yet. I got really hooked on The Diplomat with Carrie Russell, which... They've already said there'll be a season two, and I'm very excited. It was only 10 episodes. But then because I was like so excited seeing a woman in political power that I went and rewatched all five seasons of Madam Secretary in a row. Just All five seasons? Yeah, I'm almost done. How many episodes (laughs) per season? Sometimes 22. Oh, my word. (laughs) I miss some of them because it sometimes played while I was sleeping. (laughs) So, (laughs) Anything else fun for you right now other than... I know you were participating in something yesterday, if you want to talk about that. Yes. So the writer strike is ongoing. We are hitting now week three when this podcast comes out. It will be week four, hopefully, or maybe there's some negotiation. But as of right now, there has been no meetings or conversations between the two bodies. There hasn't even been any meetings yet? No. Wow. AMTPT and the WGA have not come back together to talk. The studios are very far apart from what the WGA is asking for. It is actually doesn't seem to be really a lot when you break it down to how much each person needs to actually give to the collective. It's like less than like a quarter of a percent. Like it's ridiculous how they are obviously showing the worth that they believe writers are. The upfronts are happening right now. So I was part of the protest with the NBC upfronts. And it was really bizarre to me because upfronts, for those of you who don't know, what they do is um, television uh, networks will go and do these big events in New York and and it's for advertisers. So it shows the advertisers, this is all the things that we're going to be having on on air this next season. And therefore, please give us your money. And so that's what's happening right now. And so it was really strange to be protesting outside of Radio City Music Hall with the NBC upfronts were and yelling out, hey, hey, ho, ho, corporate greed has got to go. (laughs) And I worked for I worked in advertising for a number of years and it was like this weird convergence of All your my worlds past, are converging. The past <laughs> that I really was glad to leave. I loved the people I worked with, just it just wasn't for me to this world and then how, yeah, and like this whole weird like cycle. Anyways, so I was really excited to go down. I 
feel like going from, you know, 5,000 steps a day to 25,000 steps a day was a lot in one day. I may, may be hurting a little bit, <laughs> um, but all for a good cause. So a lot of people came down to support a lot of people from Cobert, like the lead, write, lead writer and a bunch of other staff members, writers from Seth Meyers, writers from The Daily Show, as well as on-air talent. It was wonderful to see them down supporting. I think I heard Neil Gaiman was there. And then Maxwell Frost was there, who's a U.S. representative from Florida. He's really big on you know, this type of union action and and many other things. I, I think he's brilliant. He's one of the youngest representatives, um, I believe. I love seeing the the experience of being in government from his perspective, especially as someone who is really uh, the next generation. So we're finally seeing kind of Gen Z joining politics in this way. So it's really interesting. But anyways, um, I'm really hopeful that uh, the WGA will make some good changes by you know, having the strike action. I think it is impacting a lot of people. We're holding strong and we're, we're being very vocal about what was asked and what isn't even being discussed. Like there's parts that are just like, we're not even going to talk about this with you. Like that's not how negotiations work. And they're all reasonable things. And so hopefully this will help create a better, um, better working conditions for writers who are creating the things that we love to watch um, and that, you know, fill our lives with joy. Well, please help people, you know, not uh, have to forego rent mm -hmm. when they are working on a television show. Let's support our union friends, everybody. And uh, hopefully it gets resolved sooner rather than later. And we can get back to creating amazing content with a, good representation of people with disability and lived experience with mental health illnesses and whatnot. Let's do better, everybody. <laughs> that was a good call for unions. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, I say thank you for listening to today's episode of Brains. Brains. Brains, is, <laughs> Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor and mixed Brains. and mastered by Tony Bao. Our theme song is by our little brother, Depish, and our graphics were created by Perpetual Notion. Brains. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and tell your friends to tune in. You can reach us on Instagram or Twitter at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-A-A-I-N-S podcast. You can also go to our website, brainspodcast.com, where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I'm your host, Heather. And I'm your host, Sarah. Bye. Bye. Bye.